0: to stand up strong. think the truth about themselves to understand what's been wrong. I know we can find
1: a way.
0: I know we can find a way. I know we can find
2: Uniting the races with truth instead of dividing them with lies. We're also rebuilding the family by rebuilding the man. I'm Jesse Lee Peterson. Welcome to the second hour of the show already. What a mess! It's raining in, jo- in uh, L.A. I feel like it's raining all over the world. You can get involved by calling 888-7753, jesse J-E-S-S-E, Jesse. My biblical question for this week, why does God allow the devil to attack you? Why does God allow the devil to attack you? We have every everywhere that you can watch and support the show listed on com slash show, com slash show. And you can also listen to the show on your iPhone or iPad if you um, are too busy to sit and watch it. You can podcast it, but you can also listen while you're doing whatever you're doing, taking fentanyl committed suicide, coming call to border with free I, Obama phones, whatever you're doing, getting beat by your wife, you can be listening to the show <laughs> by calling the listen line at 641-793-1500. And you can podcast later. Follow us on social media. Like, follow, ring the bell. And blah blah blah. All right, we're on cozy dot tv slash jlp cozy dot tv slash jlp. And rumble, you gotta know how to rumble dot com slash jesse p. Peterson. Uh, no, Jesse Lee Peterson. And last but not least, to donate and have your comments read out loud, go to buy me coffee dot com. Buy a meal, coffee.com slash JLP talk or rebuildingtheman.com. It's Tuesday. It's the second hour of the show today. It is Country and Western Tuesday. Bring back, bring back, oh, bring back my country to me. Bring back. Bring back back my country to what dog? Who let the dogs out? Amazing.
1: Amazing.
2: Amazing. Let me just say to the callers, I'm going to get to your calls here in a minute and your uh, super chats. I have to tell you, now I know some amazing writers, right? People that know how to write books, really. But I'm about to introduce you to one of the most amazing writers on this side of a heaven today. He is um when he writes books and things like that, it's the real deal. You can see what's going on and you can understand it. The only reason you don't understand his writing, his books, you just don't want to understand it. You just have made up to your mind. I don't care how clear it is. I'm not going to understand it. And, I, and I'm not kidding, folks. I've known Jack Cashel for a long time now, and I've worked with him over the years. He has a brand-new book out called Untenable, Tenable, I'm going to have him explain that word in a minute here. This is the book, and I highly, mamma mia, hola, si, senor. Glaciers, I highly recommend it, really, for everybody. Amazing! I don't care what color you are, how old you are, how rich or poor, I highly recommend this book, and he's going to tell you how to get it. All right? Jack is an independent writer and producer, Jack has written a dozen books under his own name and collaborated on a dozen more. He has a Ph.D. from Purdue University in, a, in a American Studies. And I want to talk to Jack about this amazing book, White Flight, Flight, uh, Genification Black America. His book, Untenable. Tenable. Tenable. I'm black and slow. Jack.
1: Hey, Jesse, good to see you again. Good to see you, man. Happy New Year. Yeah, you know, I I was told, the client scientist told me just a year or two ago that you guys were in a permanent drought. I mean, so is it possible that they were wrong? (laughs) (laughs) What was it wrong? I can't imagine. It is
2: literally raining cats and dogs (laughs) in L.A. right now. You see, Jesse has on his raincoat.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, they uh the problem is you know for a lot of people uh the en- environmentalism fills their god hole in their lives. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. they use it to uh to replace what they're missing from their own spiritual uh being and they get crazy about it and they, they make stuff up, you know.
2: What a mess. Yeah.
1: yeah how do you pronounce
2: your book say your book Unten- untenable Tenable. okay untenable, untenable.
1: Let, me, let me just tell you how i got that title and i was uh, you know i grew up in north new jersey and at uh, a time of transition it was uh, you know the 60s everything was going wrong you you were in Gary at that time so right. you knew what you saw was there Yeah. and um i you know when we moved to the block uh in about 1953 when i was about 4 it was a uh, stable, working class, racially harmonious, integrated neighborhood. There were immigrants from 14 different countries on our block, you know. yeah, um, Just on one, our one block. For about 10 years, at, that's, you know, into the early 60s, that stability maintained itself. Everyone got along. You know, everyone was some kind of ethnic or another. Or were, we had black friends, we had Puerto Rican friends, Italian, Irish, whatever. And then it all fell apart and, I mean, collapsed quickly. Crime spiraled out of control. And I asked a friend of mine, you know, when I was, re- inter- when I was researching the book, an old friend of mine from my block, I said, Artie, you were the last guy to leave the block. And Artie is one of the few guys who left that, that period and remained a Democrat, and partly because his father was in the union and that sort of thing, and his wife is a, kind of woke and You're just trying to get along, I guess. And I said to him, I said, Why did you leave the block finally? And he said, Well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, What do you mean by untenable? He goes, Well, when your home gets invaded for the second time, that's untenable. Yeah. When your mother gets mugged for the second time, that's untenable. You multiply that by a million. And you have this story, not just a white flight or white ethnic flight, but a flight. Because in my book, for instance, I tell the story of another Newark native um, who, who had the almost identical experiences that my family did. And we know about it because her daughter became famous. And that is Whitney Houston's mom, Sissy Houston, yeah. you know, uh, married a guy from my neighborhood. Uh, he went to my neighborhood high school. A nice, you know, loving home. She was making pretty good living as a backup singer. You know, had a nice home, raising little Whitney. And then she goes, then the crime came, and the drugs came, and then the riots came. And I said to John, we got to get out of here. And they moved to the suburbs. Yeah. Just like uh, Kanye West's mom in Chicago, right? Yeah. Kanye gets mugged in the park. And she says, Dottie, I believe her name is Dottie, she says, call it black flight, call it whatever, we're out of here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's right. And no one would acknowledge what was going on. Yeah. But you have. In fact, I quote your book, Antidote, in, uh, in here because I don't think anyone's quite understood the nature of the problem better than you have or who has, uh, has uh, uh, articulated it more clearly. Yeah, I and thank you. The, the problem of uh, the broken home. Yeah. And the misplaced and projected anger.
2: I appreciate you calling me in your book. I was surprised to see that, and I'm grateful. But you're right. As a matter of fact, my producer, Sean, is from that area, too, that you grew up in. And, I saw uh,
1: the 201 area code come in. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as I write in the antidote, and you mentioned it in your book, um, so I was down in Alabama. The whole Jim Crow law thing was happening. But it wasn't affecting the blacks at all. And we had families. We were working. We treated people the way we would like to be treated. And the whites were treated. Everyone like the way they would like to be treated. We bought land and all kinds of stuff. And then the Civil Rights Movement came along. And I went up to Indiana uh, when I was in the 11th grade, I believe. And um they elect everything was fine in Gary, Indiana. It was fine. Nice schools, blacks and whites living together, businesses everywhere. And then they elected the first black mayor, Richard Hatchett, I think his name was. Yes. And right. and um they elected him on a Tuesday that Wednesday morning, all hell broke loose. It was like Richard gave the blacks permission, and I don't think he did. He didn't go out and say it. But all hell, broke loose. they started to attack the whites on school, on the bus, at school, in the hallways. It was like, I couldn't believe it, man. They started breaking in white people's homes and businesses. The blacks did. And I had black and white friends, but my white friends, I had a real close white friend. They left. Their parents had to take them. They say, I knew I, he didn't even get a chance to say goodbye. They left so fast because the Blacks was so yeah. out of control. And I had never seen anything like that before. It was amazing to see that. I left, too. That I went a, back you know, to Alabama way. because of right. it.
1: And you, you have to wonder, the question that has to be asked is whether, uh, the, I mean, the government programs are responsible for a lot of this. The question is, was it by design or by accident? And uh, I'll give you for instance, you know, the censuses, for whatever reason, they delay them 72 years before they release them. I don't know why. It's like JFK's brain or something. I don't know. (laughs) And so fortunately, from my research, the 1950 census came out in 2022. So I was able to track what was my block like in 1950. It was just before we moved in. Uh, And it's total working class. I mean, they list the... um, Occupations. Every blue-collar occupation you could possibly think of, short of like lumberjack, was on that list. <laughs> you know, rubber molder, casket maker. I mean, things you never think of. Yeah, there were eighty-three households. Uh, most people were renters. I mean, virtually everyone was a renter. There was a few homeowners. Most, uh, most all renters. And of the eighty-three households, uh, eighty-one. Had a male head of household, yeah right there were two widows eighty one male heads of households, uh, and like I say, immigrants from fourteen different countries seventy nine of the eighty one males were working yeah uh, and of the uh, of those eighty one households something like thirty one had a female working outside the home as well, so even though we lived very humbly. Um, we had enough. No one was starving to death. Everyone was working. And, and these were, you know, uh, the kind of jobs that probably exist today, you know, like plumber, you know, HVAC, and, you know, carpenter and yeah. the things, the jobs that will always be a need for, you know, we won't always need, uh, you know, computer programs. <laughs> there may not be any computers. right? But there'll always be, Yeah, ideally, if we keep, you know, unless we really, uh, you know, degenerate quickly. But and it wasn't perfect. Everyone wasn't happy and thrilled. But uh, the kids were being raised respectfully and one neighbor would watch out. You know, every parent, every mother on that block was your surrogate mother. You know, they were keeping an eye on you. And every kid had a father in the household. Right. You're so so right, man. So you, the boys were, did not need to find their uh, male leadership role in gangs. They found it in the home. Yes. And I, uh, so, um, But that all disintegrated within 20 years. Sure did.
2: I was thinking about, reflecting about the so-called civil rights movement last yeah. night. I did an interview on a radio show there. And one thing I realized that the so-called civil rights movement did to the Blacks, Prior to the Civil Rights Movement, there were fathers and mothers, children, grandparents, everybody working and doing their thing, right? And when when they grew up, some of them would leave Alabama and go to Indiana and places like that, and they would get jobs, they would get married, get jobs, and the wife would stay home. My mother had nine children along with me, right, nine children. And she yeah. never had to work while raising all nine children. And my father, stepfather worked. And I remember they used to go shopping every two weeks, grocery shopping, and just buy baskets and baskets of food. That would last a, a week or two, right? Right. And, and, but they all bought homes. And they worked. All of my aunts and uncles, when they left Alabama, they went and they got jobs in the steel mills and other places. And they provided for their families. But when the civil rights movement started, Jack, the one thing that they did that is not talked about is that they took, they sold the black family down the drain by agreeing to with the democratic government, Lyndon B. Johnson, to give them welfare, right, and then to put the woman ahead of the man of the black of the black man, and it's been that way ever since. They pushed the black woman to the head, forefront, and leave the black man in the background. And that started
1: with the Civil Rights Movement. They're the one that helped right, to destroy the benefits. Family. You know, you look at the great migration, like in the 30s and 40s, from the South to the northern cities. And in, in my book, I trace the Whitney, Whitney Houston's family, partly because her mother wrote a biography. And, and But her case was typical and was not unlike your mother. Right, They moved up from Georgia and in the 30s this is the depression and her father is working in a foundry you know it's probably tough sweaty hard work right but it's a job he and his her mother is uh, had a stroke she's kind of incapacitated he raises he takes care of her and the eight children every sunday to church right and to take it to mom the church he would have to carry her down three flights of stairs to a waiting wheelchair and then carry back up at the end of the day, but those kids were all clean, respectable. They loved their parents. Yeah, uh, they all learned how to sing, you know, which would pay off down the road. Yeah, and uh, and that was not a that was a typical story. So that at that time, uh, you know, uh, blacks were essentially just another ethnic group. They were beginning uh, obviously in the South. there's different things going on, and and it wasn't a perfect perfectly harmonious. Because but it wasn't as she,
2: bad as they pretend that it was either, Jack.
1: No, because no, all the ethnic groups, when they came to America, uh, who migrated, and there was serious migrations. The Irish came, I mean, the Germans came, the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, and Newark, where I grew up, and, and the blacks. They all came as outsiders. You know, they all had to adapt. Uh, but there was no one there handing them a check and telling them, hey, listen, if you get that old man out of the house, we're going to give you uh, lower rent. We're going to give you free medical care. We're going to give you food stamps. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to give you welfare. Yeah. But the the devil's uh, bargain you had to make was we can't have a man on that lease yeah. because everything is based on income. Right. So if your income now is above a certain level, all those benefits, which are in, in total worth more than his job, you know? Yeah. All those benefits go away. And uh, and you saw it household after household. We could see it happening right, right on our
2: block. Absolutely, man. What a mess. And so, Jack, what was your impression of the civil rights movement?
1: Well, you know, it had a, um, on the surface level, some of the things it did were useful and necessary, you know, in terms of eliminating... Obstacles like what? For uh, example, I was the end of them eliminated. It got worse. <laughs> yeah, well, there was, in fact, a lot of those were in a city like Newark and in, in the North. There, there weren't many obstacles. You know, there was there was a little BS you had to put up with if you're black, obviously. Uh, but the the downside of it outweighed the upside. The downside was that uh, that understanding. And it was a condescension on the part of white liberals that blacks weren't really capable of taking care of themselves. So we'll take care of them. Uh, the paternalistic, you know, uh, belief that they knew better than you did what was good for your families. Yeah. And uh, and the results were obvious in you know 1965. you know about Patrick Moynihan releases this report, the Moynihan report yeah. on the state of the black family. And he said, hey, we got a problem brewing here. You know, at that time, the problem was 25% of black kids were growing up in fatherless households, which was about twice twice what it was a decade earlier. That's only 25%. And uh, and he said the net result of this is that, and we've seen this play out over the last 60 years, is the net result is that black aspirations uh will will never match their uh, their reality because it, these their kids who are growing up fatherless are competing with kids who have a father and a home. And they're ne- and as a collective, they're never gonna average out. Their success will never match. Yeah. Right? And that's and it got worse and worse and worse. And then you know in two thousand eight, Obama for a moment, you know, spoke <laughs> up. I don't know if you remember this story, right? Where he said uh, he's at a church in uh, Chicago, and he and he lays it all out. He said the problem in our community is that too many uh, too many men are acting like boys. They're abandoning their family, and they're not living up to their responsibilities. and And then he listed the outcomes, the relative outcomes. Fatherless boys are like five times more likely to drop out of school, eight times more likely to commit crimes, ten times more likely to go to prison. Okay, he's identified the problem. Right. Let's fix that problem. Uh huh. Jesse Jackson, three weeks later, is picked up on a hot mic at a <laughs> uh, a Fox News studio. He like he didn't know, right? <laughs> he knew this would get out at Fox, and he there he is. He goes, oh, "Brock, you talking down to black people?" And then he does this. I want to cut his nuts out. Right. <laughs> I remember that. And, Right that's, the last, that's the last we heard from Barack Obama on that subject. <laughs> you so. know I, um,
2: I, I wonder would the white liberals have been able to use the blacks in the manner that they have been able to do it had not they had the support of Jesse Jackson, Martin Luther King and all those people they had support of the civil rights movement in order to use the blacks could they have done that Without the support of the uh, civil rights movement?
1: No, they needed that. In fact, what happened was when Moynihan, re, you know, he worked for Lyndon Johnson. And the report is, it, it should be read today because it, it was so prophetic. And uh, inside the Johnson administration, everyone said, Boy, this is really good. You really, this is something, because they were having an upcoming conference on the family. And they wanted to introduce the report at this big conference. It was in nineteen sixty five and then uh the civil rights leaders got a hold of the report, and they said, "Uh-uh this is we can't this can't see the light of day, yeah, because the civil rights leaders of that era depended on their being problems and the creation of problems that way they could solve the problems right? yes absolutely and so if everyone was independent and autonomous and they took care of themselves. You don't need civil rights leaders. That's right, absolutely. So the you know the various ethnic groups didn't we didn't have Jesse Jacksons and uh, of Irish Jesse Jackson or Italian Jesse Jacksons because everyone was doing it on their own. You know, there was no one who was like the uh, Italian American spokesman or the Jewish American. You didn't have that.
2: Yeah. It but was they, that's how it they, was that before the civil rights movement, black people didn't have some leadership representing them. They were right. independent thinkers. They did for
1: right. themselves, decided for themselves. They didn't have that, right? Yeah, you read. I, I just reread recently the uh, my grandfather's son, which was the uh, Clarence Thomas's book. Yes, about his grandfather. And, you know, and he's now he's living, in, uh, his, his grandfather would have been born about. Oh, 1900, maybe, roughly, I'm guessing. Maybe a little earlier. But, you know, he's an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. He's, you know, he's got his own business. He's got a home in the city. He's building a home in the country. He's making uh, 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 Clarence and his brother, he's busting their butts, you know, making them work every day, you know, yeah. building the new home out in the country. Uh, but he was an independent person. Because what they did not do, I mean, for all the, you know, the laws in the South, uh, they did not deny blacks the right to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, they, oddly, they encouraged it, because if you're not getting into a, a white hotel, you got to start your own hotels, your own businesses. Yeah. But in Clarence Thomas's case, his grandfather, uh, he, was, um, he provided uh, fuel, you know, coal, firewood, et cetera and had a truck and he delivered and, you know, made a decent living uh, in a world that, you know, we like to think of him as being subjected and, you know, uh, put upon. Well, he he lived an independent life. He didn't need anyone, right? He didn't need the state. That's right. I remember,
2: Jack, when the civil rights movement pretended that the busing issue was an issue, that the white people didn't want the black people to sit at the front of the bus or whatever they made up, Right. But at the same time, there were black business, bus businesses, black yeah. people who owned bus, city buses like that, right? But yeah. the black people had, went out of business because they were so focused on going after the whites that they didn't even encourage the blacks to, to support the black buses that were there at all.
1: And no, I mean, that was a, what, what the civil rights uh, era ushered in was an end of... Uh, not a total end, but a large part of the end of black entrepreneurship. Yes. And then what corporate America did, and they're still doing it even more, is they were buying off the best and the brightest of the black community. So people now uh, who might have started their own business back in the community are now making six figures working for, you know, Exxon or something. I don't know, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and And that talent isn't is being siphoned off. It's not. It's not being uh, finding a natural home in the uh, in the community, as it once did. Why do you think you hear about so called they they call white
2: flag flight a racist situation, but you don't hear about black flight? Because you're right. There are black people who left the inner cities too because of the black crime and stuff like that. Think about Michael Jackson and his family. As yeah. soon as they made money, they yeah, just right. stay in Gary, Indiana. Buy <laughs> <They, Bye>,
1: Gary. <laughs> they got out
2: of there real fast. Yeah. Why do you think they hide when they blame white fly, flight, they don't bring up black flight?
1: Well, that was a big part of the thesis of my book. And, yeah. and not only do they blame white people in general, they blame the white working classes, right? So if you're uh, a comfortable uh, suburban elite white person, you get to pat yourself on the head, feel good about yourself, and and then castigate those poor, those uh, less intelligent, you know, the Archie Bunkers, you know, living in the cities. They don't know. They're not as enlightened as you are. It serves that purpose for yeah for the people who control the media. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's how I turn, you know, because I grew up in a JFK, you know, preteens for JFK, whatever. You know, my whole world was Democrat. You were liberal at the time. i not. A, I wasn't a liberal. I was whatever Kennedy was. You know, <laughs> I was 12. I don't know whatever, yeah. whatever. Kennedy believed and I believed. In. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> I know what you mean. But I, I saw by the time I was uh, like uh, 18, 19, I saw that the uh, the yeah. Uh, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Don't forget your point. Let me take a quick break. Uh, okay, sure.
2: 888-7753-773. When I come back, we'll tell you how to get the book. Back in a moment. We have a counseling service, and I have to admit, thanks to God, it is the best counseling service on this side of heaven. I counsel with men and women, families, and individuals around the world. Most people are unhappy, they're miserable, they have rough lives, they're depressed, suicidal, young and old. A all races. I understand. I know why. And I do understand it. Because exactly what's happening in me is happening with everybody outside of me, inside of them. And I've noticed that with those who really, really, really want to understand, they overcome it just like that. Out of one counseling session. If you need counseling, you can go to rebuildandeman.com or call 800 411 2663. 800 411 Bond. Best counseling service on this side of heaven. Okay, hey, folks. Eight 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 seven seven five three seven seven three eight 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 seven seven. Jesse Jack Cashel is here, an amazing writer, a true American, and understand what's going on. You will love this book, folks. I highly recommend it. Really, it's so it's easy read. It really is. Jack, tell the folks how to how to get your book and other books and writings you've done as well.
1: Right. I would say, you know, for uh, the way publishers keep score now is on Amazon. You know, I hate to give Amazon any more business than they already have, but I would recommend you just go to Amazon to buy the book. It's called Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. You see that on the picture, that picture on the cover there, Jesse. Uh, Can you pick me out? That's my family. I was wondering, if this was your family? Yeah. So,
2: I guess this would be you. No, I'm on the
1: other side. I'm the the, the, younger. the third boy. Really? Yeah, Amazing. <laughs> so, that would be Jack. Right. Now, this is a working class family, circa 1960, right? Newark, New Jersey. And look at us. I know. All dressed up for church, right? The blacks used to dress like that, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, especially on... In fact, this was an Easter Sunday. Yeah. On Easter, I don't know if you remember that. Uh blacks would, yeah, they they'd go crazy on Easter Sunday for dressing up. I, yeah. Um, Amazing.
2: I remember we could go shopping for our Easter clothes. Oh yeah. E- Easter Sunday clothes. Easter
1: was a big deal in uh in, in our neighborhoods. Yeah. You know? But you but the families then together got dressed, went to church, you know.
2: Yeah. Mothers, fathers, kids, you know? Absolutely, man. Yeah. I mean, because of time, I want to, before we went to break, I asked were you ever a liberal? And you said you were just a Kennedy person. Right.
1: As an adolescent. But by the end of the 1960s, I I saw that uh, I was not one of them. I was not one of the people writing the editorials about white flight. I was not one of the people on TV scolding people like my family for, you know, who being who we were. We were not the ones who were sidestepping affirmative action to get our children into <laughs> elite schools. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's a and I talk about this a lot in the book. There's a there was a whole culture war going on within white culture between white suburban elites and working class ethnic whites. And these guys were giving themselves all the awards, patting themselves on the head, you know, being champions of this, that and the other thing. Meanwhile, we were in the streets living out the consequences of their policies and then, then getting scolded for objecting to those policies. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, and it goes on till t- today. I mean, it's they haven't they haven't learned anything. Yeah. Yeah. Let me
2: ask. Ask. Um... What What's wrong with the Black adults who will not kind of pull away from the crowd and start questioning things and thinking for themselves? Why? What is preventing not all, not all, not all, but most Blacks from thinking for themselves and
1: seeing what's going on really happening and overcoming it? Well, the, the main problem is the propaganda they get. You know, so you and I know there's alternative media sources. The average person who's not looking for the Jesse Lee Peterson show or, you know, or Dan Bongino or whomever else is getting this steady stream of of propaganda. And each year it moves further and further away from reality, further and further to the left. So for the last, especially since uh, Trump emerged it's been one series of lies after another, yeah. major lies, yeah. big lies, massive lies. I know. What a and, mess. And yet at the same time, we're seeing more and more the smarter people, the more observant people within the culture peeling away, right? Now, we see that in the interviews. We see it in the focus groups. We have yet to really see it on election day when it matters. Um uh, Partly because their votes are getting swamped and stolen, you know, but uh, partly because they need that. uh, People need that affirmation that that you're not alone, that there's other people out there who think as you do, and uh, and that's why your show is so useful, and why your your book Antidote. I I recommend that to everyone. I think it was the the clearest uh, look at how that situation develops. Where, when you're, you project your anger at your parents towards, in your case, and in, in the culture, case of black culture, against white people. Yeah. In white culture, when your parents are gone, you don't have that projected that one projected source, so it goes in different places. And you know, my I have a friend who calls it the the Democratic Party, the the hate daddy party. Right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So the hate daddy, and on the white side, goes to you hate the, uh, the polluters. You hate the, you know, the, uh, the corporate giants. Yeah. You hate you know, all these people. And then, especially now, you hate so much of their anger is projected at Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, this the great white hope.
1: Him. Yeah. The great
2: white hope. So yeah. I want to, man, I could talk to you all day, Jack, but I, I, don't, I can't today, but I want to. Uh, explain
1: propaganda and how that works. Yeah. You know, it's a, there was a time, you know, maybe 50 years ago when the media tried to be objective. You know, they had a little bias. We know that. But over time, what happened is that journalists used to come up off the streets, you know, like they're regular guys. Right. Right. They were working class guys. Yeah. They hang out at the bar. They, you know, they, you know, talk to the cops and and they reflected a more realistic view of the world. But then they started grooming journalists in um uh, in, in schools and colleges. And as the colleges moved further to the left, the journalists moved further to the left. And they then became they replaced that old generation of of real guy journalism with fake, elite, uh you know, college bred, you know, snobby little journalists who didn't know anything <laughs> about it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh so they began to basically, and, and then the story gets really big, because what's happening in America is happening around the world. There's a class, there's an elite class that is yeah. has their minions in the, in the newsrooms and the boardrooms, uh, and they're being fought in every major Western country by the populists, by the nationalists, by the people who think for themselves, who work their own jobs, who make their own livings, and are resisting that that top-down kind of elitism where their goal is to control you. And uh, and they control you through the propaganda, through the Washington Post, through the New York Times, through the networks, and also by constricting what you know on social media. So personally, I think the greatest stroke of personal freedom in the last several years was Elon Musk buying Twitter. That yeah. was huge. Yeah, that was. Now, history... Recognizes him for what he did, yeah, because it's um, in many ways liberated the uh, the uh, public square and made propaganda much more difficult to impose when you have alternative voices now going through a major channel and blocking you. But the average per how the average
2: person don't think about propaganda. They don't know they're being propagandized. No. How would you, if you don't know about it, you're not even familiar with the word for the most part, because you're just going along with your life. Yeah. How would you recognize
1: that you're being propagandized if you don't know about it? That's an excellent question. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes it happens for people who uh, have like an epiphany. They just, they have a moment of awareness. Yeah, that's I what happened to this me. One guy, for instance. In California, I, who was a surfer, you know, leftist, you know, artist, typical uh, guy. And then one day his, uh, he couldn't get his FM radio to work in his car. So he ended up listening to Rush Limbaugh. Right? <laughs> and then he said, you yeah, this guy isn't crazy as crazy as I thought he was. You yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then you hear more and more or, you know, like Brendan Straka with his walk away movement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of uh, people said it about Trump too. Yeah. They didn't know that they were being
2: propagandized and then they finally listened to Trump. And they finally right. and
1: all of a sudden they woke up and they realized they've been lied to. Oh yeah. I just watching Ben Shapiro, you know, say like how in two thousand sixteen he couldn't stand Trump, blah 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 blah. And then his eyes began to open up, you right. know. And he's conservative. Yeah. But uh, some of the, you know, the the anti the never Trumpers, the anti Trumpers, were worst of all because it was a, that was a battle of pride. You know, they they thought they were the conservative movement. Yeah, yeah. But then they saw that. Hold it. You know, do you open your eyes and begin to listen, or do you fight and go back into your corner, and and then close your you know put your hands over your ears?
2: I uh, yeah. that happened to me in my thirties because. In Alabama, I didn't grow up with that mindset, but once I moved here to L.A., I started listening to Jesse Jackson and all them, Louis Farrakhan, yeah. and I became propagandized. But I didn't know right. They were propagandizing me, right? And so finally, one day, I realized, I thought, well, if it's hard for black people to make it because of white people— how come Jesse Jackson and his kids and everybody doing so well, they live in nice neighborhoods, huh, right? going to the best school, they have amazing jobs, and Louis Farrakhan living behind a gated fence on golf course somewhere. And once I start questioning it, I woke up and I realized I was being propagandized and didn't know it. And that's when I started to overcome it.
1: You know, what happens is, is the whole concept of the red pill. You know, you once you take <laughs> that pill, yeah, and, and that happened a lot during COVID, there's a lot of people especially in a state like California where you you have these crazy rules that just changed every day. Yeah. And people who had been, you know, listening to the government all along believing their propaganda, all of a sudden they had that one awakening. That happened to, in fact that happened to Elon Musk. It happened over COVID, right? He said they're trying to take my freedom away. Yeah. And then once he begins to expand the media he's absorbing, he begins to say hold oh, this, not just COVID right? It's climate change. It's this, it's that, it's this, you yeah. know? Uh, and so then you begin to see the world from the other side. Why are half of Americans resisting this? So during all the COVID BS, half of us lived our lives like regular human beings. Yeah. And the other half were sitting in their apartments with masks on, you know? <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah, why are some I- of those people... Some of those people opened their eyes and said, my God, we've been deceived. We've been misled. We've trusted sources that were lying to us. Yeah. And now they have to face the consequences. Jack, why are white, not all, not all, not all, not all,
2: not all, but most white people are so afraid to speak up when it comes to this fake idea of racism and they're being blamed for the destruction of the blacks. Why are they afraid to say no? All they have to say, no, I'm not responsible for your life.
1: Well, yeah, that's an excellent question because you're absolutely right. They are terrified. Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason now has to do with the corporate environment. If you work for a company, or even if you're in the military or education, healthcare, if you even object to the whole DEI agenda, you will get downgraded on your your next uh, promotion. You know, that's a that's a condition now. I had a friend who left Bank of America because they would had they had a gay scale every day, and he had to <laughs> check off whether he was going to be a, a a friend of gay or whatever gay alliance. And he said, "No, I'm I'm out of here. I'm not going to work for this company." Yeah. But not many people have that capability. Even with, before that, though, Jesse, I've always felt comfortable. Because I grew up in a world, I grew up in an integrated world. And, you know, I was, uh, I was on, a, I wrote a book on uh, boxing about 20 years ago. It was on a show with Stephen A. Smith on ESPN. And there uh, with some other people. And the book centered on Muhammad Ali, uh, who I thought betrayed his, his people and all of us. Yeah. But, uh, and I said, uh, the guy said to me, well, you've ever been in a civil rights march? He said to me, right? <laughs> I was an adolescent. What do I know? I said, yeah, I was in a civil rights march. I said, every day I walked to the playground and back without getting my ass kicked. That was a civil rights march. <laughs> my civil rights march. I said, I had the guilt beaten out of me. I don't have any guilt about this. Yeah, I, I lived in a world where people were equal. We're all on the same footing, right? That's right, so man. I've always felt free to speak. But when I do, I I can see the white people kind of shrinking back. <laughs> don't. don't, don't, don't. You know, even if you're respectful and you're honest and you're objective, uh, yeah, uh, that's the one honest, the one accurate thing Eric Holder said about that we're, when it comes to race, we're a nation of cowards. Yeah. And he was right. Yeah. But He's- then he and Obama, you know, for the their eight years, if you dared speak up, they would intimidate you, uh, you know, harass you, uh, force you out of your job even. So they weren't adding to the openness of the conversation. Do you think if white, white people loved what was
2: right more than anything else, the material things or, or job or reputation, so-called reputation, do you believe if they love what was right more than anything
1: else that they will have the fear of speaking up or losing no, that's anything? That's a good question. I think you're right. If, um, I always thought that when you go to a job to work any given morning, and I've been working for myself for a while now, so it's not an issue. But when I used to work in, uh, you know, I worked in advertising for many years and I went to work every morning with this thought in mind today could be the last day of my career here. Yeah. Cause I'm not going to There's certain things I'm not going to take. Yeah. Right? And, right. and to do that though, it helps to be prepared both, you know, emotionally and financially. So you don't live over your head. You don't live day to day. You always have a little, as the French said, you should always live on last year's income, so you have the year of income that allows you to exercise your conscience. Uh, another thing that keeps uh, people in check, white and black, is the word pension. So many people are so fearful of losing their pensions yeah. that they will not—they will do anything they have to do.
2: That's amazing. Jack, yeah. as a result of white people not speaking up, as you know, according to Bluebird.com, corporate America promised to hire a lot more people of color. It actually, and it actually did. The year after Black Lives Matter protests, the S&P 100 added more than 300,000 jobs. 94% went to people of color. 94% of the new job went to people of
1: color, putting white people out of work. And you know who those jobs are going to? Who's that? They're going to people from India, from people from Pakistan, <laughs> you know, from people from Southeast Asia, from China. Yeah. Uh, people of color. And But black people, I don't think, are getting this. But with this uh, new infusion of people, their percentage of the population is shrinking and their power is shrinking with it. Yeah. So in I a state see like California, there's Poor Hispanics for every Black, uh, they're 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 sacrificing their own power to sign on to this, and they sign on thinking they're getting the goodies, but they're that ain't going to happen.
2: That you know? is so true, Jack. Before this time ran out, you mentioned uh, beat Mama Michelle Obama in your book, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I want to play this clip for you real fast and get a response from Time Magazine. Michelle Obama opened up about the pain of witnessing white flight as a child. Watch this from, I don't know, can Jack see it? At least you can hear it if you can't see it from Times.
0: But unbeknownst to us, we
1: grew up in the period, as I write, uh, called white flight. That as families like ours, upstanding families like ours, you know, who were doing everything we were supposed to do and better, Um, as we moved in, uh, white folks moved out because they were afraid of what our families represented. And I always stop there when I talk about this out out in the world, because, you know, I want to remind white folks that y'all were running, running from us. <laughs> you know, because... This family. This family. Yeah. <laughs> this family, <laughs> with all the values that you read about,
2: yeah,
1: you were running from us. And you're still running, <laughs> because... We're no different than the immigrant families that are moving in—the families in Pilsen, the, the, the families that are coming from other places to try to do better. Yeah. What do you say to that, Jack? Well, you know, I, I read uh, uh, Joel uh, Gilbert's book. Our friend, uh, yeah, on Michelle. Yeah, I know that's a total lie from beginning to end. Yeah, her family was a classic family—a black flight. They were living in a place called Parkway Gardens in Chicago. And uh, when the project kids started going to their little public school, they fled. They fled down the South Shore. And when this, but South Shore and part of Chicago, by the time they got there, you know, actually they sent the kids ahead to school for a couple of years. It had been a Jewish neighborhood and uh, which was illegal. And it was a (laughs) a misdemeanor to send your kids out of district. Uh, And then so they get there. And Michelle, when she gets there, she realizes the families weren't like hers. You know, she was getting she gets punched in the face on the first day of class. The (laughs) the girls are harassing her. They're calling her Oreos. Uh, So there's an all nearly all black high school just down the street. And so with Michelle, uh, Michelle's mother, she had good parents. Uh, Marion does. She takes another job so she could send Craig, the brother, to a Catholic school, a white Catholic school. They don't go to black schools. And then Michelle, they send her an hour or so downtown to a magnet school. She's been running from black people all her life. She's <laughs> running from black people because she doesn't really see herself as one of them, except when she's running for office, you know, or her husband is. So if that's true, I believe it. She's sitting there. Is that what you call propaganda? She's sitting there lying auto, to the audience. propaganda. Because in my neighborhood as a kid, we had black families like hers, yeah, living next door to us, yeah. You know, good black families with two parents, two nice kids, and then they weren't the problem. The problem were the the, the, the people that she ran from—the project kids in in a black neighborhood. They, they can't call them blacks; they call them the element. You know, <laughs> yeah. And uh, when the element moves into your neighborhood, you move out. It doesn't matter what color they are. Jack, yeah. tell the folks how to get your book. We have about two minutes. Okay, Untenable, uh, The True Story of White Ethnic life from America's Cities. In fact, I talk about Michelle in there, too. Yeah. Um, I would say just go to Amazon.com, put in Cashel, C-A-S-H-I-L-L. It'll list all my books. Uh, also, um, I would uh, recommend you go to my website, Cashel.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. I'm on Twitter at Jack Cashel, Facebook, Jack Cashel. Uh I don't I don't use a. Alias, yeah, have go by my real name and <laughs> yeah, look for the boss, Jack. I, just, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank I you. I would also absolutely recommend they read your book, Antidote. I think it's one of the most important books written in a long time. Thank you, man. The antidote is at rebuildingdemand.com
2: or call 800 411 Bond. Jack, we're going to talk again soon, man. Good seeing you, you been anytime. All right, take Good care. To see you. All right,
1: so we're showing fun, by the way. I'm sorry. Oh. Where's Sean from? Where's he Where from?
2: Where are you
1: from, Sean? <laughs> Edgewater, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a little different than New York, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's close. All right. Hey, we'll <laughs> see you guys. Take care. Okay, bye.
2: Bye-bye.
1: If you can doubt
2: every thought because you're not your thoughts, if you can doubt every thought Knowing that you are not your thoughts, you don't create them. They are not from God, that they're from the deceiver, the great deceiver, Satan. If you can doubt every thought, you can be free just like that. At an instant, bring every thought into captivity. It's so amazing.
0: A whole lot of mess going on in the world. This is the end of hour two already of the Jesse Lee Peterson Show, Country and Western Tuesday, February 6th, A.D., 2024. The lines are full, guys. JLP will be right back to your calls. Great interview with Jack Cashill, author of Untenable, com. Two L's, C-H-A-S-H-I-L-L jlptalk.com for all things uh, JLP radio show. That's com slash show. You can find how to podcast the Jesse Lee Peterson show. And you can find the network hosts, including Hake, American Anchor Baby, and Joelle Friday TV, who's live right after Hake at 11 a.m. Pacific before Anchor Baby at noon Pacific time. Gaza drama, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, joke of a Secretary of State, According to Kami Nonsense Network, is back in the Middle East this week as global officials work to ensure the Israel-Hamas war drama does not escalate into a wider conflict. Seems like that's already happened, but hopefully they'll clamp it down, these incompetent people, corrupt people. On Monday, Blinken met with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to discuss regional coordination on ending the war in Gaza. As plans for the war-torn strip once uh, the fighting ends. On the uh, ground, on the ground, Israel's defense minister says Hamas's leadership is on the run, but a spokesman for the militant group, they call it a spokesperson. Do you really think it might be a woman for for Hamas? Give me a break. Uh, For the militant group said their fighters are still operating in all areas of the enclave. The latest violence has caused more than 1,200 deaths in Israel which you already heard about, that's back in October, and nearly 27,500 dead, dead, dead in Gaza as of Monday, per authorities on both sides. Space tourism, Virgin Galactic, grounded after a small part detached from a vehicle on its latest space tourism flight. Can you believe it? The company said the loss of the part called an alignment pin. (laughs) did not impact the safety of its sixth commercial mission that launched in late January. Virgin Galactic said they will work alongside the FAA, which licenses commercial rocket launches, on a review of the issue. They, the FAA, FAA stated they will not carry out a mishap investigation, Oh, that they will carry out a mishap investigation. They must approve Virgin Galactic's final report, including the corrective actions before they can return to flight. Virgin Galactic said they'll remedy the issue as they eye another launch in the second quarter of 2024. Rest in peace, Toby Keith. Country singer Toby Keith died Monday, per CNN, after a battle with stomach cancer. He was 62 years old, gone too soon, the tender age. He fought his fight with grace and courage, stated uh, his website, Toby Keith's website, He's known for his hits, including Red Solo Cup, I Want to Talk About Me, and his 2002 song, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, The Angry American, in parentheses, released in the aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks, the 2001 9-11, that made him a household name. And mudslides in Los Angeles. 120 mudslides been reported to authorities in Los Angeles as a powerful storm continues to Batter. Southern California forecasts show the worst of the downpours may be over, but the ongoing rain today means more floods and mudslides possible, making matters worse than the vast majority of California flood victims' losses won't be covered by insurance, say analysts. It pays to be rich. Uh, Zelensky and Ukraine propaganda. A new beginning is necessary, says Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky, not a Christian, saying in an interview that he. Is considering replacing many of Ukraine's leaders to reset the country's path. Wow, maybe he should replace himself. Nearly two years since Russia invaded, Zelensky's not specified who will be replaced. But his comments come amid speculation over the future of Ukraine's army chief, Valery Valerie Zaluznyi. Police violence on blacks. I'll tell you about this on the Hague Report. <laughs> It's mostly justified, I would guess. But anyway, I'm James Haig. Now back to JLP, Hour (laughs) 3.